We are glad that you are here today, and uh, we are continuing in week six of this series, and it's taking a long time because we're, we're walking through a number of the foundational myths that once you begin to understand uh, how some of the ideas have begun to change in society, some in ways that are good and others in ways that are not so good. And when you begin to understand some of those foundational reasons for shifts in our society, all of a sudden, a lot of things start to make a lot more sense. And so the question today is, are you ready? <laughs> are you ready to study God's word today? Okay. Okay, today... We are going to be in the book of John, and the myth that we are going to look at today is something that more and more people are believing, as we'll see in just a minute. But it's the idea that truth is relative, feelings are facts. In 1966, Time magazine did something that they had never done in the 40-year history of the magazine. For the first time in 1996 or 1966, they printed a magazine with no picture on the cover, just a black background with three red words that said this, is God dead? It was one of the most iconic magazine covers in history. And so then 50 years later, they did the same thing again just two years ago. And two years ago, in 2017, they followed this up with another question. Is truth dead? A few years ago, uh, just a few months ago, actually, uh, Donald Trump's legal uh, advisor, his lawyer, the former mayor of New York City, Rudolph Giuliani, famously in an interview on CNN, said, truth isn't truth. And uh, when pressed upon that statement, he followed up by saying, facts, today, facts are in the eye of the beholder. And people went ballistic. How dare he say such a thing? But really, if you've looked at how society has been going, you see that what he was saying is not a surprise, that actually it speaks to this this foundational myth that we're talking about today. In 2016, the Oxford Dictionary said that the 2016 word of the year is post-truth. They defined this as an era in which objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotion. Does that sound about right? That today... Public opinion is shaped much more by appeals to emotion than by objective facts. And actually, there's a new word in the dictionary. It's called truthiness. It was actually coined by, of all people, uh, Robert Colbert, the late night TV show host. Uh, and, and he came up with this word, and it, is, uh, it became the word of the year back then and is now in the dictionary Truthiness is the quality of seeming to be true according to one's intuition, opinion, or perception without regard to logic, factual evidence, or the like. Now, I want to say something today 
I, I want to make sure you understand the church is not against science. I am all about science as long as it is viewed in the realm of that which it is actually qualified to prove. But I would suggest that science has somewhat contributed to this problem, not because science is the problem in and of itself, but rather because of how many people think that science is all-knowing, all-powerful, and invincibly infallible. Many people don't understand what science actually is. And you say, well, Joel, how, why would you say that? Well, for example, here's a t-shirt that really sums up how many people view it today. The, the, or the sweatshirt says, science is fact, religion is superstition. Now, let me ask you a question. Is science fact? And the answer is, well, it sounds like that should be a true statement, but science is not fact. What science is, is a methodology. Science is the pursuit of facts. Science is the pursuit of knowledge. And anyone who has been alive for more than 10 years knows that what science says is true today sometimes is proven not to be true 10 years from now. When I was growing up, eggs they said you can't eat them because they'll kill you. Eggs will clog up your arteries, right? Because of cholesterol. But now they say that eggs are one of the most nutrient-dense foods that you can eat. And so there are so many silly examples like that and more serious examples like that. But, but what we need to understand is that science is good because science is a methodology to explore and reveal truth, but it can only tell us so much about the world. Science can only explain so much. And so to the other side, what happens is people then run to this, this myth today that truth is relative, that feelings are facts, and people get so confused. People don't know what to believe in. Now, all of a sudden, because of this myth, as we put this myth back on the screen, that truth is relative, feelings are facts, you say, well, what is the evidence of that? What does that lead to in our society, this foundational myth? I would say one of the kinds of things, there are many things, but one of the kinds of things that leads to is the idea that one day you can be a boy and the next day you can be a girl because it's based on how you feel. Literally, our society says now that feelings are facts, even more than biology. And listen, I want you to understand something. Please hear my heart. I am not attacking people who struggle with gender identity. We love you. We love you. We love you. And my heart breaks for those who are struggling. But we need to understand that so many of the things that we see in our society today, the ways that people think, comes from this myth that feelings are in fact reality. And if that's true, then, then today, with more freedom than ever before, people should be happier than ever before. Wouldn't you think? But 41% of Canadians struggle with anxiety, and 63% of Canadians aged 18 to 29 struggle with anxiety, 16, uh, 63%. And among young ladies, that number is 71%. 
And again, I'm not blaming people for their anxiety. Please don't miss the point here. In fact, I'll share with you someday my story. I have struggled with anxiety. And I'll tell you someday about my journey with that. But what I wonder is, here's what, here's what, I'm, what I wonder is, is, is if living in this world today with nothing to believe in but ourselves leads to the consequences of what we see. People say the only real truth is what you can find where? Inside of yourself. We hear that all the time. Find your own truth. And so people look inside to find their truth, and what do we find? Confusion and insecurity. And that leaves us wondering if there is anything anywhere in the world that we can truly believe in. And so I want you to find John chapter 18. Uh, here we, uh, we read a conversation between Jesus and the Roman governor of Judea. His name was Pontius Pilate. And in this conversation between Jesus and Pilate, they actually talk about this very myth that we are talking about today. And Jesus said to him, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. But now my kingdom is from another place. Oh, you are a king, said Pilate. Well, Jesus answered, you're right in saying I am a king. In fact, for this reason I was born and for this reason I came into the world to testify to the truth. And everyone on the side of truth listens to me. And then look at what Pilate asks. What is truth? Pilate asked, what is truth? See, this is not a new question. Even Pilate wrestled with this question 2,000 years ago. And listen, your answer to that question is hugely important. And let me explain to you why. Because what you believe actually shapes your life. What you believe determines everything else in your life. And so, uh, back in 1998, the best-selling author, author uh, Michael Crichton, was working on a novel called State of Fear. And, and in preparation and research for this novel, he was studying man-made disasters. And so we began to study what had happened in Chernobyl back in 1986 when the nuclear power plant uh, devastatingly released radioactive waste out into uh, the community. It was one of the worst man-made disasters in history. And, and he was surprised to find in his research that what happened at Chernobyl was not actually what people believed. In, in a speech Crichton gave in 2005, he talked about the power of false information. And if you'd let me, I'd like to read just a little bit from his speech. He says, Chernobyl was a tragic event, but nothing close, nothing remotely close to the global catastrophe I imagined. He says, about 50 people had died in Chernobyl. Now, I don't mean to be gruesome, but it was a setback for me. You cannot write a novel about a global disaster in which only 50 people die. What I had been led to believe about, 
about Chernobyl was not merely wrong, it was astonishingly wrong. The initial reports in 1986 claimed 2,000 dead and an unknown number of future deaths and deformities occurring in a wide swath extending from Sweden to the Black Sea. And as the years passed, the size of the, the reports of the disaster increased. By the year 2000, the BBC and the New York Times estimated 15,000 to 30,000 dead and so on. Now, to report that 15,000 to 30,000 people have died when the actual number is 56 represents a big error. But of course, you think we're talking about radiation. What about the long-term consequences? Unfortunately, here the media reports are even less accurate. There were estimates that as high as 3.5 million Others said 500,000 deaths when the actual number of delayed deaths is less than 4,000. Again, a huge error. But most troubling of all, according to the UN report in 2005, in 2005, the UN reported, quote, that the largest pu public health problem created by the accident in Chernobyl is the damaging psychological impact due to a lack of accurate information, manifesting as negative self-assessments of health, belief in a shortened life expectancy, lack of initiative, and dependence on assistance from the state. In other words, the greatest damage to the people of Chernobyl was caused by bad information. These people were not so much blighted by radiation as much as by terrifying but false information. Chernobyl suggests that false information can be just as much a health hazard as radiation. I'm not saying radiation is not a threat. I'm not saying Chernobyl was not a genuinely serious event. But thousands of Ukrainians who did not die were made invalids out of fear. They were told to be afraid. They were told they were going to die when they were not. They were told their children would be deformed when they were not. They were told they couldn't have children when they could. They were authoritatively promised a future of cancer, deformities, pain, and decay. It is no wonder they responded as they did. See, listen, the quality of your life is greatly determined by what you believe. And wrong beliefs can be fatal. And so that's why this myth that we're talking about today is so very important. Now, obviously, when you come to church, you hope to hear what the Bible has to say, right? You can go anywhere else to hear whatever else, but if you come to church, you expect to hear what the Bible has to say. What does Jesus have to say? And here's what Jesus says. Jesus says that truth is not just a what, let's put it on the screen, truth is not just a what, it is a who. Now I know this is kind of a weird concept if you, you know, think, to think of truth as more than just an idea, more than just a scientific calculation, more than just a code of right and wrong, but as Jesus said, to think of truth as not just a what, but as a who. And so look at what Jesus says 
In a famous verse in the Bible, John 14, verse 6, Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And listen, I I understand that some of you here today do not yet believe that. And if that's okay, we just want you to know we are so glad you're here. This is a safe place to explore the claims of Christ. But it is important for you to understand that this is what Jesus claimed of himself. And in the very first chapter of this book, John chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word. Where it says there, the Word, in your English translation, Remember the New Testament was written in Greek and the Greek word here for the word is logos. Another way to translate logos is truth. That the idea of logos in Greek culture, in the Greek language, is the idea that somehow behind all that exists in the universe, there is a unifying truth, a source of truth that holds all things together. And Jesus claimed to be that himself. In the beginning was the word, the truth, and this word was with God, and this word, this truth was God. He was with God in the beginning. And this word, this truth, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father full of grace and truth. Jesus came from the Father full of what? Full of grace and truth. Let's say it together. Jesus came from the Father full of grace and truth. Now, What you find is that when many people look at Jesus, when you begin to study history, when you study the ancient writings, when you read the Gospels for yourself, pretty much much everybody is amazed by Jesus. Jesus is impressive. If anyone in the world has ever embodied the fullness of grace and truth, it is Jesus. And so what you find many times is that for some, the problem that they have is not so much with Jesus as it is with Christians. (laughs) And and so what is, why is it that sometimes people would find Jesus intriguing, but Christians not? And I wonder if historically it is sometimes because we have gotten this, this balance of grace and truth off. You see, the key to an effective life like Jesus is the balance of grace and truth. But what happens many times is that Christians become known for communicating the truth while forgetting grace. And so what happens is Christians will declare to the world, you are sinners going to hell, you are separated from God, you need Jesus, you have no hope, here are all the problems with the world, and here are all the reasons that we're right, and here's what the Bible says, and listen, listen, I'm not saying those things aren't true. But the problem is when you declare that truth without grace, truth without grace is arrogance. Truth without grace is is condescending. 
Truth without grace is hypocritical. Truth without grace comes across as a message of hate rather than as a message of love. So instead, what does everybody in the world want? We want grace without truth, right? And what is grace without truth? Grace is this myth that your feelings define your identity. Who you are is how you feel. Your urges and desires and everything defines who you are. Truth is only found within yourself, your existential reality. Find your own truth. Nobody can tell me what to do as long as you try to be a good person. That's enough. And tolerance becomes the highest value in society. With no foundation, grace without truth. The Los Angeles Times had an article some years ago where they said, to be sure the initial assault on truth began on the in, in the intellectual left in the 1960s. In academia, the old-fashioned idea that there were some things that we could all be certain of gave way to the postmodern worldview that held that truth does not really exist in any objective sense, but is instead created by each individual through the prism of his own background and biases. According to this new dictum, reality itself is fragmented and the search for commonly held truths is the province of fools, innocence, and fundamentalists. In this new regime, serious thinkers are by definition dogmatic skeptics. College students, as one writer puts it, now feel safer as doubters than as believers and as perpetual seekers rather than eventual finders. On today's college campuses, truth is so 20th century. Let me read that last part again. College students now feel safer as doubters rather than as believers and as perpetual seekers rather than eventual finders. Truth is so 20th century. And so in that environment, here's what happens. In a world where feelings become facts, Christians will become thought of as condescending or dangerous. And we see the beginnings of that in our society today. And I think that's the challenge that we face. One of the greatest challenges that we face is because we as Christians come into the knowledge of Jesus as the fullness of grace and truth. And he transforms our lives. And so all of a sudden, we begin to see the world through the lens of his truth in this book. And then we look around and we see through his truth that this world is a mess and that our, our urges and desires actually tend to lead us away from God, but that the Father has loved us so much that he provided a way for our forgiveness and restoration so that we could be bought back and brought back to him through the death of his son, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross, on the cross to give us a new beginning, and that in this book we find the words of eternal life. And so then we face the challenge once we 
we are transformed, how do we then go out and live in this world? How do we live the truth of Jesus in a world that says feelings are facts? There is no objective sense of right or wrong. And here's what I would say to you. Understand that this is why Christians will become pushed more and more to the margins of society. But what do we do when people push us out of the way? How do we respond with love in a fullness of grace and truth? How do we respond when people attack us and accuse us and lie about us and disregard us? We respond in love, like Jesus, in a fullness of grace and truth. Many of you know the magicians, Penn and Teller. Uh, Penn and Teller are uh, some of my favorites. My son and I have watched a lot of their magic specials and shows that they've had. And, and uh, they've had for a number of years a big theater where they sell out their magic shows in Las Vegas in addition to traveling around the world. They've been on all the TV channels and HBO specials and on and on and on. And uh, Penn, the tall guy here, is a devout atheist. I don't mean just a, a quiet atheist, like he is, he is evangelistic about his lack of belief in God. And he'll tell everybody about it. And he's often been on TV doing interviews about why he believes there is no God. But one night, after one of his shows, he sat down in front of his computer and recorded a video blog that was then posted on YouTube. And I want you to watch the story that he tells. I want to talk to you about this. Uh, I get home from the show, and at the end of the show, as I've mentioned before, we go out and we, uh, we talk to folks and you know, sign an occasional autograph and shake hands and so on. And there was one guy waiting over to the side in the um, what I call the hover position after I was all done, big guy, probably about my age. Big guy. And um, he had been the, um, the guy who has uh, picks the joke during our psychic comedian section of the show. Uh, so he had the props from that in his hand because we'd give those away. He had the, uh, the joke book and the, and the envelope and the paper and stuff. If you haven't seen the live show, uh, uh, it's not worth explaining. But he had props from the show that we'd given him from the night before. Uh, he wasn't the guy that night. And he walked over to me and he said, um, I was here last night at the show and uh, uh, I saw the show and I liked it. I wanted, and he was very complimentary about my use of language and um, complimentary about, you know, honesty and stuff. He said nice stuff. No reason to go into it. He said nice stuff. And then he said, I brought this for you. And he handed me a uh, Gideon pocket edition um, 
I thought it said from the New Testament, but I also thought it was Psalms from the New Testament, right? Or, uh, Psalms from the New, just part of the New Testament. Little book about this big, this thick, you know. He said, I wrote in the front of it, and I wanted you to have this. I'm kind of uh, proselytizing. And then he said, I'm a businessman. I'm, I'm sane. I'm not crazy. And he looked me right in the eye and did all of this. And uh, it was really wonderful. I believe he knew that I was an atheist. But he was not uh, defensive, and he looked me right in the eyes. And he was truly complimentary. It wasn't in any way, it didn't seem like empty flattery. He was really kind and nice and sane and looked me in the eyes and talked to me and then gave me this Bible. And I've always said, you know, that I, I don't respect people who don't proselytize. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life or whatever, and you think that, uh, well, it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward. And atheists who think that people shouldn't proselytize, just leave me alone, keep your religion to yourself. Uh, how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? I mean, if I believed beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe it, that truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point where I tackle you. And this is more important than that. And I've always thought that, and I've written about that, and I've thought of it conceptually. This guy was a really good guy. He was polite and honest and sane, and he cared enough about me to proselytize and give me a, a Bible, which had written in it a little note to me, uh, not very personal, but just, you know, like to show and so on, and then like five phone numbers for him and an email address if I wanted to get in touch. Now, I know there's no God, and one polite person living his life right doesn't change that. Uh, but I'll tell you, he was a very, very, very good man. And uh, that's really important. And with that kind of goodness, uh, it's okay to have that deep of a disagreement. I still think that religion does a lot of bad stuff, but man, that was a good man who gave you that book. That's all I wanted to say. an atheist saying how much do you have to hate someone to believe that you have the truth that leads to eternal life and not share it with them almost makes me think maybe we should just end the service right now and say okay go do it <laughs> But how? How do we do it in that beautiful balance, that Christ-like love that speaks the truth but lathered and smothered 
in grace. You see, this is our mission, our calling as a church. We say it every Sunday. We try to live it out in our small groups. God's love that transforms our lives, working in us to transform us and make us like Jesus within the community of the church to the world, to then go out and share that with others, to invite people to church. That's one of the easiest things to do. Uh, we have cards available. I keep them in my wallet uh, so that all the time if I'm in a conversation with somebody, I can hand them a card that just has the information about the church and invites them to church. And if you'd like those, we have thousands of them. Uh, you can grab one at the information center. A lot of the ushers have them even at their stations on the way out the door today if you'd like to invite somebody to church. But why do we do this? Because we truly believe that the love of Jesus changes everything. And folks, folks, if faith really is more than just feelings, if there really is a God in heaven and Jesus died and rose again, if this book really has the words of eternal life and God's plan for humanity, if Jesus really is the way, the truth, and the life, then there is nothing more loving that you could do than to tell somebody about Jesus, to invite them to church, to experience it for themselves. Would you stand? And we invite our, our prayer team to come forward at this point. And here on either side, every Sunday, we have people who are here to pray with you. And, and while you can come and receive prayer for any issue that you might be facing today, or maybe you just are seeking more of God in your life, whatever it is, there are two things in particular, though, that are heavy on my heart today for prayer. And the first is salvation. If you're here today and you have never been set free by the truth of Jesus, we invite you to come. And at the, after we just sing a verse or two of a song, I'm going to come back and I'm going to lead you through a prayer. And if you'd like to come forward for that, you don't absolutely have to. You can even do it at your seat. But know that if you want to take a step of faith, if God prompts you, sometimes God just makes you do stuff that you don't want to do in order to be obedient to him as a step of faith, as a demonstration of the seriousness the seriousness of your commitment. And if that's the case, we invite you to come forward. If you'd like someone to pray with you and, and lead you through that. But there's a second thing that's heavy on my heart today, and it's some of you right now who God is speaking to you very clearly about how you need to tell somebody about Jesus, somebody in your life who you need to engage in a spiritual conversation with them and you are scared and you would like someone to pray with you today. And so as we sing this song about the beautiful power of our great, great God and the wonders of nature and the heavens and the earth that he has created, as we sing and declare the goodness of our God, if you would like special prayer today, we invite you to come forward as we sing these words.